I am 17 years old. It's winter. I'm crouched on the carpet in the same position as the Sphinx. Only I'm leaning over a plate of food, which is a bit of a difference. And the telly's on. Whatever I'm eating has been extracted from the freezer and microwaved. Someone else cooked it, plated it up, and covered it in cling wrap. So all I've had to do is chuck it under heat for three or four minutes. The potatoes are stodgy. And the gravy on the strips of lamb has a strange, soapy quality to it. For the first time in my life, I have been busy lately. Doing what I can't remember, but maybe I was starting to get this sense that you can make yourself important, or at least seem that way. Tonight, though, Seinfeld is on the telly. Or the Drew Carey show. Or American wrestling. I do not yet know who I am. But it would be this winter that I, for the first time, would start scribbling in a journal almost every day, writing shitty poetry and laying out all my insecurities onto each blank page. But that's getting to near to half a lifetime ago now. Since then, I have come and gone many times from this place where I grew up, Tasmania. And now I find myself trapped here. Which is definitely not too bad a situation, actually. In the midst of all the comings and goings since then, I've gradually shifted about 50 kilometres west of the address from these adolescent years that I'm talking about. I'm now out in a shack in the bush, and the shack is actually an old train carriage, which also sits somewhat sphinx-like, incongruous in the forest around it. And since I'm more or less holed up here for the foreseeable future, I decided to start telling stories. Or rather, I started to record the stories that I'm always exploring in my weird little head so that I might share them. With whom, I'm not sure, but if it's you, here you go. These are tales of travels and and the people I've met. Impressions of ecological or philosophical ideas or or other subjects that I've studied in a half-assed manner over the years. And they're sometimes dreams or fantasies or fictions. They're stories. And I guess I'm trying with each episode, if you like, to put together a suite of stories around a theme that I'm happy to tackle loosely. In the last lot of stories, I suggested that I'd been thinking a lot about death because, you know, thousands of people are carking it from this pesky virus. But when I looked back to the things I had subsequently talked about, I realised that almost nothing was actually about death. In fact... The case was that in the light of this possible death, I told a whole lot of stories about life. And some of them were quite charming, I suppose. 
but I sort of thought it was a, a cop-out actually. Because truth be told, I find it incredibly easy to talk about life. I throw open the double doors of this train carriage every morning and sit on the step cross-legged with a cup of coffee in my hands and I look out on the scene that I've come to know has an infinite capacity to stimulate me. An extraordinary evolutionary history is before my eyes, each species with its own tail that spans millions of years incorporating a great deal of this planet's details. And that palette of endless subtle shades also includes me, a being of surprising capacity and complexity. This I could yak about for donkey's yonks. Or take my little anecdote about eating a reheated roast in front of reruns of American television. How many millions of these memories could I conjure up? But the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein suggested that if you were to think more deeply about death, these are his words, then it would be truly strange if in so doing you did not encounter new images, new linguistic fields. And since that's mostly what I'm into, it seems worth having a crack. Of course, death is hard to speak of. And ultimately, it's probably an utterly indescribable subject because I am still alive and, and so I don't know much about the experience of being dead. And frankly, it seems that the stories of death are more frequently the stories of those of us who are still alive when someone else has passed away. They're about we who go veering off into various manifestations of grief onto the strange, crooked paths of mourning that we seem able to roam upon for years and years and years. But even, even these topics have their worth. Thinking about these, I suppose, because I don't know about you, but I've got time. Could be good to work a little harder to try and find the words for this sort of stuff. Especially if it is something that we're going to have to encounter, maybe sooner rather than later. We had all been together a few months earlier at a party for the new year, some years ago now. Even then we knew it was the last time most of us would gather in the same place at the same time. Although we were mostly thinking of those of us who were younger, you know. People moving interstate for university, people moving overseas for love. And then there was me having quietly plotted to simply wander off before the next year began for no good reason. We got dressed up, and we got drunk. A band played, and the night with these old friends was pure bliss. Drawing close before we drifted off in different directions, like 
in those traditional dances where everyone holds hands in a circle and moves right in, then retreats. Except at that point, we would all let go of one another and never dance together again. Late at night, or in the early hours of the first morning of the new year, someone had raised a glass with an old Jewish toast. L'chaim, they said. To life. And it wasn't ironic. There was no bitterness in it. Maybe it was naive, but it was certainly exactly what we meant. To life, and everything in it, even the shitty bits. Nevertheless, a few months later, there was the funeral. And that toast to life, at that point, seemed a bit gruesome in hindsight. The deceased was pretty young herself, I think not even 40 yet. Her greatest urge in life was clearly presented by the fact that she had known how to say I love you in 13 languages. She had known she would die that year. And she didn't fear it. She believed that the body was merely a house for the spirit which would someday decide to move elsewhere inevitably. And at the funeral I approached the coffin with this woman's niece and we looked upon the body. Her hugs had been famously warm and had so often cheered us up in the past but now it wouldn't be much chop to get one from her. And she had been so beautiful and kind yet we found it impossible to recognise the beauty or kindness in the corpse. And in that sense, it seemed hard to disagree with this woman's belief that the body had just been an abode for something non-physical that had now chosen to change address. Just a rental, as she'd said. The question was shared evenly among all of us, I guess. Because when we looked upon the body at the funeral, with our elbows and sorrows linked, this woman's niece nudged me, looked up at me and said with a smirk, Well, I like what they've done with the place. But even as a younger man, when I was poking about various religious ways of contemplating existence, I was never really attracted to eternal life. It just seemed too placid, sterile, Martian. Can it be that there's something about its brevity that makes life so special? As a poet once wrote, beauty has to be kept in proportion. But maybe this is the bravado of someone for whom death is still so distant, it's just like a concept, or, as Patrick White once wrote it, a literary conceit. Even when I've been near to dying myself, I've dismissed it so easily, straight away. I thought this past week of a, another example of a close call I've had. Last year I was staying in a village on the very furthest outskirts of Tehran, where the city hits the Alborz Mountains. I went out in the morning for a stroll, and just as I reached the mountain track, I heard an anxious shout. Hey! I looked up to see a builder up on the ridge, who was watching a boulder, twice the size of my body, bounding directly towards me. I turned on my heels and walked back down the road, pretty fast, without stopping, and the boulder careered off into a ravine a few metres behind me, but I barely looked back. My heart was racing a little, I guess. But I returned to the house shortly afterwards and made a cuppa and read and... By the afternoon, the whole incident was in the distant past. Death's random pattern, its erratic trajectory, having gone zinging past me. 
close by, but having not yet bowled me over, and so still seeming eons away, dismissed as a dream. It's hard to tell the full story about this funeral I went to a decade ago, because most of those of us who mourned that day are still alive and may be listening. And I barely saw any of them ever again after that. We went back to the house for the wake and family members sang church songs from her childhood in another country. It was a jovial affair with fried chicken and cake. It was probably just what she'd have wanted. But shortly afterwards I I felt alienated from all this. And in a sense I became estranged from almost all of those people. From that whole life of mine. No one's fault, it was just like the woman who died had somehow held it all together which I don't think is strictly true, but without a doubt, she left a gaping hole in our tapestry. So many threads ran through her life in order to connect with others, and now those connections were sundered. Her death, leaving a lot of frayed and tattered fabric. Loose ends. There were stories that just weren't finished. I guess she might have thought that they could carry on at some future juncture, somewhere in the sky. I don't say it with any authority, but I can't hold out any real hopes for that. And in saying so, I guess I also confess that I I don't think stories often have happy endings, not most of the time. Nor even conclusive endings, proper ones. And that the real literary conceit is to tie things up with any sort of neatness when most matters to do with life and death finish halfway through a sentence mid-breath, like those text messages I used to get from a friend which invariably finished with a comma, as if there was always something more to say, even if she couldn't say it now. That seems to be the grammar that a writer or a storyteller should use, if they're aiming for realism. The road that I take down to Hobart goes over a high plateau, over 1,200 metres above sea level at one point. It's a a pretty fun drive. It's got some great views of mountains and a a big old lake and curves and hills. And at one spot, quite recently, the council put up a sign just before a pretty serious set of switchbacks. And the sign is big and bright red, a, a warning sign saying, steep descent ahead. And, and when I first saw that they'd put that sign up, uh, you know, I guess things in my own life were, uh, weren't that crash hot, and, you know, I was just getting rejections left and right from publishers and, uh, you know, gigs, job interview that I went for, you know, these sorts of things. And I thought it would have been nice if someone had put up an appropriate warning like this at the right time, telling me that my life was going downhill as well. And then 
Recently, I was rereading the work of a classicist who tells us that the ancient Greeks frequently used the adjective steep whenever they described death. So I thought that perhaps we should all keep that bright red warning sign at the front of our mind. Steep descent ahead. The great downward plunge. And now for my own purposes, I have a, a little metaphor for death. Someday we're all going to drop down off the plateau, so to speak. Last time I took that drive, I had a, a close encounter with a white goshawk. Uh, this is my favourite bird. It's an exceptional and exquisite raptor that's grey elsewhere, but in Tasmania takes on a, a pure white plumage. It's essentially an angel, if you're looking for a comparison except an angel with a really grumpy face. An angel that hunts smaller birds and marsupials and mice and so on. When I saw it, it was in the middle of the road. I could see it from ages away, so I slowed right down, and I was going about 20 k's an hour when I approached it. Standing in a clump of roadkill like a statue on a bloody plinth. And it stared me down for as long as it could before taking off flapping its heavy wings, lifting its big body off the bitumen and spreading over my car. I actually thought that it might grab my Toyota in its talons and take me off with it. As I drove a little further, I looked down at the carcass, a mess of blood and fur that was once a possum or a paddy melon, couldn't actually be sure. The contrast was immense. The goshawk, white, vivid, Alert, full of force. And the dead critter a dark smudge. Crushed. Obviously useless. Hardly identifiable. Done. The past tense. This was no Schrodinger's marsupial. There was no doubt about it. Is the difference between life and death always so explicit? I'm not so sure. People come and go from our lives for all sorts of reasons, not only death. And sometimes someone you forgot from a decade ago may as well be no longer with us. And the deceased, well, they come back to us if we remember them well. It's weird to say, but we kind of say it all the time. The dead live on in us. The other day I was reading a speech of Martin Luther King Jr.'s. Of course, he was assassinated by someone hoping to crush the power of his ideas, but look how much it failed. Still today, we can talk about his presence in our politics, in our, in our societies, and the way people see themselves. And although the comparison is actually brutal, it doesn't hold up. Martin Luther King is not that anonymous bloodied lump on the road with the angry hawk standing on it. Anyone can tell you that something of his self has transcended the brief span of time he lived on the earth. But then I have this suspicion that this is a prejudice of the literate, that memory can make us immortal. Writers, I'm ashamed to say, have been banging on about this for centuries. Horace, the Roman poet, wrote about how the true tragedy would be to live a life that was forgotten, thinking of brave people who had perished unlamented, lost to history because there had been no poet to record them. And I think this is why I felt my own thoughts about death and grief were a bit underdone. 
The poets might get a bit of work out of it, but the dead themselves actually get no comfort from being remembered. We talk about them, extrapolate on what they might have said or done, but for them, they've simply lost their agency, lost control over their destiny. The living have the power to warp their memory. And in that sense, those who are dead may as well be remnants on tarmac. I hope that you'll bear with me whenever I try to discuss anything to do with being Tasmanian and the Aboriginal history of this island. I'll never quite get it right. It may well be my lifetime's work to try to account for what I've got on top of so much loss. But there's an anecdote recorded in a white man's journal. The death of an unnamed woman on Bruny Island in the 1820s. The journalist only says that she's the wife of Joe. And of course Joe wasn't his real name anyway. She'd been sick for a while and... When she passed away, she was cremated on the isthmus of that island... Her friends powdered their bodies with charcoal and rouged their faces with ochre. And this white fellow with his ever-present notebook asked Joe what his wife's last words were. He wrote them down. But he didn't give any explanation to the meaning of those nine or ten syllables. Just jotted them down in capital letters in his journal and moved on. It, it was something like Roga Akorgri Loginar. Perhaps these words have been absorbed into today's Tasmanian Aboriginal language, Palawakani. Or perhaps they have gone off the edge into oblivion, like so much language in this country. But for me... Unintentionally, they've become symbolic language, markers of the confusing cloud of sorrow and death that this island has over it. The bare sounds of these syllables echoing in my head sometimes when I think about what it really means to be dead.
Earlier on, I mentioned a certain meal I ate. Plucked from the freezer and microwave for three or so minutes on medium-high heat. A bit gristly. Nothing master chef, that's for sure. Well, the context of that story is that I had to eat microwave meals because as a teenager I didn't really know how to cook for myself. Mum did all the cooking at that time, um, but then she was in hospital with bowel cancer. She survived and came home and later I learned to cook happy endings all round, but though I don't really want to rattle on too long telling this story about Mumsy, if only because I doubt that she would like to be turned into a figment of my stories and fair enough, I make a lot of shit up. But also if I'm ever going to face the topic of death here in my train carriage, this is the sort of thing I'm going to have to ponder. Now the story I would like to tell from this time is that once I went into the hospital to visit my mum while she was sick. I went in there and she was asleep and I sat a while to wait for her to wake up. I'd been there for maybe an hour or two and then knowing Launceston's bus timetable I decided I should head home and catch her the next day instead. But just as I got up to go, in came creeping death. Dressed up like a big old medieval nun going out to cut the grass at the front of the cloister. It looked like she was about to slash at mum with that scythe, so I leaned forward and grabbed her weapon or tool or whatever it is, and I said, no you don't, Death. This is way too early. We're not ready. Still got yarns to spin, mate. So you ease up. Death looked at me with a sulky black look and she started to say, oh, I don't think you can tell me what to do. And I said, well, I am okay. This is just how it is. Look, she drinks, she smokes, she goes on cruise ships. No doubt you'll nab her someday, but this is, this is just not the time. And as Death retreated out the door, she turned to me and said, Indian food. You've got to learn to cook and you should start with Indian food. You can do it pretty simply to start with. You can do it pretty cheap. And I learned a valuable lesson that day. It was death who taught me to love Dahl. That's the story I'd like to tell. But actually, I was a, a useless teenage boy. Pretty lonely as I lingered in my own sense of inadequacy fumbling with my miserable feelings and therefore bumbling away as I tried to express anything that I felt, including when I talked to Mum there in a hospital bed. Now, she'll probably die in the next pandemic on board the Diamond Queen or whatever friggin' cruise ship she goes on next. But thankfully, then, she pulled through. Had that cancer snuffed her out, I reckon I'd still be grappling with both grief and guilt. Two things that are often entwined, I guess. And especially difficult to resolve, because you can't just send an email to a mate who's dead or a deceased family member. There can be no reconciliation between two equal entities. 
But nevertheless, we can find ways to leave what's been done in the past. Not entirely. We know how history always entangles us in its strange snares, but, but we must extricate ourselves from past events that hold us to who we were if that's not who we want to be. And those who are dead, as I've said, I, I doubt that they mind if we move on in one way or another. Even if we're not sure where they are, I reckon we can do it in a way that honours them. Because there's no sense in squandering what we've got here, the brief events of life in the meantime. Sometimes in these past weeks there's been a vague sense of worry that flutters across my mind. Concern for the mortality of certain people I have in my life who, who might be more vulnerable to coronavirus or, or whatever. I'm aware of the myriad emotions that would merge as conditions of mourning if I were to lose them. The disappointment, the sorrow, the regret and whatever else. A special element of the human experience is having important aspects of our lives that we've shared with another. In some respects, these bits only exist in a shared state. They're held together by being bound to another individual as well. So they're essentially parts of ourselves. And thus, a little bit of us dies also when one of these mates of ours passes away. And obviously, the closer we are with someone, the more we've shared with them, the more we stand to lose when they die. With those we love, with those we share much of our pasts and our hopes and dreams, their death leaves a crater, an absence, a void that can't ever fully be closed over. And what about us? Do we fear death? On the surface, this virus seems pretty unlikely to kill me, but, you know, it might. And also, like, I've got pretty shitty tyres at the moment, so I'm susceptible to slipping off the road and dying, taking an accidental turn-off to Hades on the supermarket run. I mean, there are countless threats to my mortality that lurk at every moment around every corner. But I don't think I'm scared of being dead. Let me, however, admit to an irrational image. I picture myself in a state of posthumous frustration. There's too much that's left unfinished, you know. Projects I've started, stories half-written. Having never travelled to Uzbekistan would piss me off. It's like, now's not the time to pull the pin. I'm imagining myself on the sidelines of an eternal football ground having been dragged off just as I started to get going. Yes, I pretty much squandered the first part of the game. I was a bit sluggish, I made a few poor choices, but I'm just beginning to hit my stride, coach. Believe me, keep me on the field. That may, of course, be a central tenet of facing death, being forced to surrender, finally finding no way forward with all the goals we've made. I've heard monks who say that their retreat into the contemplative life is in fact a way of embracing death before it embraces them. I'm intrigued, but as I've said, I, I do prefer the stories of life rather than those of death. The infinite precipice that surrounds us is part of what makes it all so very charming. 
just before I told that made-up story about facing off with death. Well, truth be told, ten years ago I had a dream in which I, I really gave death a serve. It was a weird dream, and I should forewarn you, apparently I cursed like a sailor in my subconscious. My sincere apologies, but... Anyway, I was in a science lab, creating this large-scale experiment with sulfuric fires that conjured up wild winds that came roaring through the room. And at last, as this gust and its noise subsided, there was a little knock at the door. And I called out, Who is it? And this pathetic little voice piped up. It, it's, it's death. And suddenly I felt this adrenaline coursing through my body. My chest swelled and my jaws tightened and I opened the door and looked down on this feeble presence and with no fear and with an unruly roar I shouted, Fuck off, you fucking prick! Yet I somehow suspect that this is not the expansion of language that the philosopher Wittgenstein was suggesting. Maybe I still have a long way to go in learning how to talk about death. And I certainly need to learn some manners when I'm speaking to her. <laughs>